Hey everyone, this is your host, Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of European tech. My guest today is Easy Vitra. Easy is the co-founder and managing partner of Remagine Ventures, an early-stage fund investing in ambitious entrepreneurs at the intersection of tech, media, data, and commerce. Previously, he was a general partner at Google Ventures Europe and led the fund's first investment outside of the US. Before joining Google Ventures, Easy was the head of Google for Entrepreneurs Europe and the founding head of Campus London, Google's first physical space for technology startups in London. On top of that, Easy is a prolific writer. He has been blogging about technology and venture capital at VC Cafe for the past 15 years. In today's episode, we cover absolutely everything. How growing up as a child of immigrants shaped his worldviews, his three-leg framework for building tech ecosystems, the difference between Europe, the US, and Israel when it comes to technology, starting his fund, Reimagine Ventures, Easy's ability to rally people around one purpose, especially the tech bikers nonprofit, and much, much more. Easy has a very distinctive and valuable perspective on technology and innovation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Easy, welcome to the Seed Table Podcast. I'm a big fan of your work, so it's a pleasure having you here. How are you doing? Thanks, Gons, for having me. I'm a big fan of Seed Table, so it uh, goes both ways. <laughs> Thanks. So, so let's dive right in. So your family moved from Argentina. I'm Argentinian as well. When you were eight, what's like being a child of immigrants? How did that shape you? Uh, first of all, nobody's perfect, uh, as Argentinians uh, would say. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, when you're a kid, it's not really in your control, right? Like uh, it was my parents' decisions. But I think in, in retrospect, it was one of the best things that could have happened to me because uh, it did a few things. One is uh, I was basically from a very young age, I had a global perspective. Growing up or being born in South America and then growing up in the Middle East with families sort of like uh, dispersed around multiple countries, I had a very um, notion of sort of like the world is big and uh, I have people that I care about and care about me in different places. More than anything, being a, you know, a child of an immigrant and an immigrant myself gives you this uh, perseverance and, and grit. You kind of uh, feel like you need to work harder to fit in. And I think that at a very young age, that's sort of like becomes part of your personality and the boost. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising then that you see that the, uh, half of the CEOs of uh, some of the startups are, are child of immigrants or immigrants themselves because it's like this uh, necessity to see the, the picture from the outside and uh, try to fit in, find your own space. Do you think speaking different languages, being embedded in different cultures helps you access different ideas uh, by virtue of those perspectives that you mentioned? I do. I think it was Steve Jobs that said that uh, creativity is connecting uh, seemingly disconnected thoughts or ideas. And uh, I think that being an immigrant naturally gives you sort of like this comparing all the time, you know, like what have I seen elsewhere? It's also learning a new language at a young age or also sort of like builds you that confidence that you can do it. And, you know, I don't want to put too much to it, but I do think that there's, there's something about having to catch up with the local kids when you're the outsider 
that builds this sort of like uh, virtuous cycle of uh, working harder, you know, like uh, doing your homework, uh, feeling how important it is to, to, to get certain things right. Did you have this feeling of having to catch up uh, throughout your entire career? I think it's mostly catch up with myself, maybe. Like I'd like to, I, I guess I thrive in chaos or I'd like to take more than I think is uh, comfortable, maybe. But that's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a personality thing. I'm not sure how connected it is to sort of like my immigrant experience. Cool. So let's, then let's dive a bit into your career. You've worked at us.com, AOL, Google, then you worked at a startup, Antidote, now you're in venture capital. What's the difference between how big companies and startups operate and make decisions? Uh, something that would surprise most of us. Well, there, there's a lot, actually. So it starts from talent. There's talent uh, pros and cons in both the startup and corporate scenario. You know, a corporate can pay and they can afford to attract, you know, people that are overqualified for their job. So on one hand, it's incredible to work with some of the most experienced, smartest people in the world. On the other hand, I think uh, in some cases that talent can become very comfortable in the corporate and become slower to move and, you know, less risk taking and, and sort of like playing more defense. Like, how do I keep this job versus like, how do I do the right thing by the users or take risks or, you know, so I think talent is the number one thing. The other thing I would say is systems, a huge perspective change when you work at a corporate that has to manage uh, like Google, you know, 50, 60,000 people where you have to find systems to be able to direct this workforce at scale. And OKRs, for example, you know, that startups are now also starting to take as, a, as best practice is a huge system that is put in place to make sure that everyone works very hard towards a shared goal. And I think that's, a, that's also a big difference between corporates and startups. And the, the last thing is, of course, the speed and the, the hustle and the risk, you know, the startup is, is truly a roller coaster and a, a good day at a startup feels amazing. You know, a bad day at a startup can feel terrible. In the corporate, it's more even flow. So when you joined Antidote, how, how big was the team? About 30 people spread between uh, New York and London. So yeah, relatively small. How did you manage the transition from a huge corporate working in an office to essentially a distributed startup with 30 people? It's a, it was a big transition. You know, I, I had, first of all, I fell in love with the startup's mission, which always helps if you're working on something that uh, you're passionate about. You know, you're, you're going to, it doesn't feel like work and you're going to do uh, extraordinary things. And the other thing is that I had a very clear mission in helping the startup raise a significant growth round. So, you know, having a purpose I think helps you attract uh, overqualified people. And then having a clear mission with limited resources, I think the constraints are a key for creativity. So you find yourself working very hard with a very clear goal. And once, you know, you, if you're lucky to, to achieve that goal with a small team, and so almost like against all odds, it's an incredible feeling. It's interesting because that's one of the counterintuitive things of solving complex problems. If you solve complex and interesting problems, then you end up attracting sort of the best 
talent, which makes it maybe, or you could argue easier to solve than just plain problems that no one cares about. And you initially went into those problems thinking they were easy to solve, but at the end of the day, you don't really have the time to do it. Yeah, you're right. I think that, you know, part of uh, defining the company's purpose and mission and why it exists has to do with the problem that it solved. But also, I think the vision is what world do you see yourself in, you know, not, not right now, but if you accomplish the vision of the company, like how does the future look like if you are successful? And in the case of Antidote, it's a company that uh, uses machine learning to help essentially structure data around clinical trial eligibility to enable people, patients to understand what their options are. So having lost my, my dad to cancer, when you're a patient or when you're a caregiver, you understand how hopeless you are. You know, it's suddenly you start reading a lot of texts around uh, medical terms and it's very hard to understand your options and the, you know, the care path. And, uh, you know, if you suffer from a disease that doesn't have a cure, your only option to get cured is a clinical trial. The, the paradox here is that um, people can't really figure out what clinical trials they match to. It's too difficult and it's, it's too medical and the doctors don't have time to solve this. So, you know, it, it, I think part of it is the technical complexity of solving this problem, which, which attracts sort of like the engineers, you know, that think like, oh, I know what can be done here and I know how we can use this uh, technology or that technology to accelerate uh, or make the search better. And part of it has to do with the, with the vision and the impact, you know, that uh, if you do your job right, you're literally saving people's lives. And when you are able to connect sort of like the complex technical problem with the impact that you're making in the world and, and clearly communicate this to the world, to your employees, to your customers, to your partners, etc., I think it's a very powerful mechanism. I want to go back to the second point that you mentioned, which was uh, resource constraints for, for founders and, and operators uh, at startups listening to this. We're, we're all familiar what it's like to operate with limited resources. But I want to go to the other end of the spectrum. There's this anecdote of, of your time as, at Ask.com uh, that I, I'm calling it the NASCAR story. <laughs> Can you sort of unpack that story for me? Yeah, it's, it's more like the NASCAR nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> So ask.com is a company that used to have, I don't know the figures today, but they used to have about 4% of um, the US search market. Even at those low numbers, it's still a huge figure in terms of dollars and, and queries and traffic. And um, it was very innovative. So ask was really sort of like experimenting, you know, they, they had nothing to lose and everything to gain so they could take risks in when it comes to sort of like the search experience, a little bit like you would see from the DuckDuckGo today. And, you know, when we, when I was there and I was a um, senior product manager, I was working on vertical search, which is basically everything that happens uh, um, outside of sort of like web search. You can think about it as local search, people search, etc. And one of the products I was working on was essentially creating the best uh, question and answer hub on the internet. So people, because of the legacy of ask.com or ask Jeeves, people ask questions at ask sort of eight times more than any other search engine because of its legacy. And um, we got very close to launching it, worked on it for six months, you know, a great uh, engineering team, designers, etc. 
when then the CEO was replaced. And one day we all got called into a bar next to the office and uh, the CEO showed a picture of crying babies and said, you know, these are our products. And you know why they're crying? Because they're all orphaned. And they're orphaned because, you know, we, we need to sort of like find the audience um, that loves this product. And that particular CEO was coming from marketing background. And he basically, um, not immediately, but shortly after that meeting, said, well, there's uh, something like uh, 70 million NASCAR fans. It was uh, around 2008, financial crisis hit, and a lot of these uh, sponsors were dropping off from NASCAR. And he said, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a marketing guy. Uh, we're going to sponsor NASCAR. And he literally wanted to put stickers on cars, thinking that it would solve sort of like the audience problem. You know, the, the, it didn't end very well there also for, for the CEO's sort of like trajectory in the company. But I think everyone sees the world from, from their point of view. And, uh, you know, if you're a hammer, everyone looks like a nail. And if you're a marketing guy, you're thinking about uh, where am I going to put the logo? <laughs> That's equally funny and, and, and frightening, as you said. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons that le led you to, to move on from Ask.com, right? Yeah, well, Ask, Ask did very fine by me. I, I, they were very flexible with me. I, I was living in San Francisco and I, I was accepted to do my MBA at London Business School. So, you know, the story starts from before, but, you know, when my, my wife now, who was then my girlfriend, I was living in New York. Uh, we shook hands and, and we said like that she will move with me to San Francisco if I move with her to London. She had been accepted to do her master's. So my time to fulfill my side of the bargain came and I knew that I had to move and ask um, kindly enabled me to, to make that move and continue doing what I was doing. But then after sort of like that experience with NASCAR, I realized, you know, this is not, you know, I, I can't, uh, I put too much into it. Uh, and I was also like doing business school at the same time. So I was approached by AOL to, to lead search in Europe. And, you know, it was not necessarily my dream, but I was also in the middle of school and I was uh, essentially uh, managing a team of product managers and their roadmap for, for several markets, you know, quite a lot of revenue under management. So it was an interesting challenge. And after AOL, you, you moved to Google. And, and the Google move was interesting for you for, for two reasons. A, you wanted to do Google for a while. And B, you moved from product management to partnerships. So what was it like to finally get, get that job, but then after you got it, essentially say like, shit, I got to learn something new now? You know, I... I... When I was living in New York, I was interviewing at Google and I got to a point where I actually passed all the interviews. Google was notoriously slow at the time. And I'm, you know, I wasn't born in the US, but at the time that I was interviewing with Google, my, my wife now, then girlfriend said, uh, you know, you should interview with other companies at the same time. And I'm like, well, why? I don't want to work uh, somewhere else. And uh, it's, a, it's a mentality thing. And uh, sort of like she said like here here's one interesting one like why don't you apply here and that was ask and and to ask credit they move extremely fast you know we had a conversation they flew me to san francisco i had three interviews and at the end of the third one uh they put an offer on the table and like the third person i spoke to was the ceo 
Uh, with Google, it was the opposite, right? Like a number of, uh, of steps and the sort of like uh, quite spaced in between. So when I got the offer from Ask, I called Google and I said like, hey guys, um, what's going on? Like I, I, I have an offer, I need to know. And they said, well, congratulations, you passed all the interviews. Now in, in three weeks time, there's going to be a committee where Larry and Sergey uh, review each offer individually, each candidate individually. Uh, and I said, well, I don't have three weeks. I have uh, three days. And uh, I had to make a decision. But ultimately, at the time, I was t- talking about um, Google in New York. And this one, you know, finishing business school in London Business School, I also had another option to consider with, with a VC fund. And for me, it felt like if I don't do Google now, you know, I'll never do it. And if the VC fund wants me now, uh, they probably will also want me after working at Google. So it was a no-brainer for me. And at the same time, after finishing uh, business school, I wanted to do a bit more business. I already had sort of like the product experience. I was a product manager, senior product manager, principal product manager. And I got to a point where I wasn't doing product so much. I was doing more managing of the team. So it was a, a really great um, chance to switch to the other side. And to be honest, it was a different perspective completely to, to product. After partnerships, you moved on to head of campus at Google. Uh, can you tell, tell us how you got that job? Because I think there's a very interesting lesson in there. Um, sure. So, you know, I joined Google um, in, 2000 and, uh, in 2010. And at the time, I, I had moved recently from San Francisco. And um, in San Francisco, it's sort of like the Disneyland for startups, right? Like every day, there's a million things going on. And uh, you can walk on the street and you would bump into three different startup events and people in the industry. It's like a, a microcosmos of the startup world. When I moved to London, on the other end, it was um, much more quiet. And there wasn't much going on, you know, like there, there were maybe three startup events that most of them revolved around drinking and, you know, maybe a, a couple of pitch events here and there, but very, very quiet. And I was desperately looking, is there anything at Google that has to do with startups? Even though I was, I was happy sort of like doing partnerships and, and launching products for Google in various markets in EMEA, I was looking every day in the intranet of Google, is there anything with startups? And one day I came across a speech that Eric Schmidt gave that said, you know, we're going to build this innovation center in London. So I, I looked at the, who created the website internally and I, it was uh, Obi Felton who um, today runs the moonshots at Google X. Then she was the director of consumer marketing in EMEA. And I, I said like, hey, Obi, uh, I just found out we're doing this. How can I help? And she told me, well, in a few months, we'll be looking for, for a head for it. And I said, well, definitely count on me. And uh, rather than waiting, like the idea of campus or, or, you know, what this innovation center could be was really like spinning my head. So I, I was uh, very involved in the startup ecosystem already as a mentor at Seedcamp and with my blog. And, you know, just by the, fact, by the virtue of the fact that uh, I came from San Francisco and uh, I was in product management in a dot-com. And uh, I went and set up a bunch of meetings with people I respect and trust and friends and uh, people in the industry. And I, I sort of like asked everyone a similar question. And I said, well, if Google was doing something like this, what do you think are the challenges and the opportunities? And 
do you think that I could be a good fit for something like this? And um, I collected all those data points and I organized them into a 100 day plan. And when the time came for the interviews, uh, I, I did what some people refer to as the briefcase technique, which is, uh, you know, the question, of course, will come up of like, what would you do as the head of campus? And, you know, you sort of like then open the briefcase and here's a 30 page document. So I was very fortunate that sort of like I stumbled across it, but at the same time, I was so passionate about it that I didn't really leave them much choice. And very luckily, they entrusted me with, with the reins of campus. And uh, I'm happy to say that a lot of the, the things that I've done at campus were in my original plan, down to program names and, and some other extracurricular activities like tech bikers. I've, uh, we'll talk about tech bikers uh, in a bit because it's extremely interesting. But I think that the, the lesson here is execution trumps everything. You essentially went ahead and just did stuff before anyone asked you. Would, that, would you agree with that statement? I think passion trumps everything. Okay. Because execution, if I told you, like, go and write a plan, you know, execution is going and doing it really well. And yes, it's important. But what's the fuel that makes you, you know, go and, and really sort of like spend extra time on it and, and feel like, you know, it's, it's burning inside you. And this, this is passion. And it comes back to sort of like doing what you love. If, if you're lucky enough to, to do what you love, it doesn't feel like work. So you're going to give 110% and you're going to be able to connect all these seemingly disconnected things. But I agree that execution is extremely important. I can definitely relate to that. Like seat table for me is essentially that passion project. Uh, what made you so passionate about startups? That is a bit harder to to answer. Um, you know, I think I caught the bug when I was very young. Um, my parents sort of like gave me a Commodore sixty four, and um, I was playing video games with cassettes and, and you know, I, I went to take um, computer classes from a very young age, you know, like Logo and Basic and Visual Basic and, and then Pascal. And I kept sort of like um, learning about coding all throughout high school and I was doing it at school, but also outside of school. So I already had this uh, passion about technology. Uh, that maybe was fueled more from the games side of things. But, you know, I, I learned, you know, the, the literacy, like how can you do stuff with computers? But I think when I was in college, I was accepted to an entrepreneurship program that is the, so it's called the Zell Entrepreneurship Program. It's like the Y Combinator inside university where at the last year of studies, um, only 20 kids get accepted and you get to create a company in your last year of school sort of like learning from the top professors, but also practicing and, and, and doing stuff uh, while you're in college. And that, um, that was an eye-opener for me, sort of like feeling what it's like to invent something and suddenly it's out there and somebody uses it is a very addictive feeling. And any entrepreneur will tell you that the first dollar they made from their craft or, you know, the first user that suddenly tested their product, it's... Uh, it's hard to compare it to, to something else, especially like working a corporate. And um, I think that's where I caught the bug. It came with the background of childhood, but the hands-on experience sort of like made me feel like, wow, I really love this. 
And then when I moved to, to New York, I joined a startup. It was a startup at the time called the Gerson Lerman Group or GLG. And, you know, I, I saw sort of like how a startup works at scale and incredible team, very successful company, you know, growing massively 3x year over year. I saw it grow from like about 100, uh, 150 people to 600 people, 15 offices. Uh, so, you know, that was sort of like before the more corporate jobs and uh, that never really went away. So VC Cafe for me, uh, the blog that I started in 2005 was a way to keep in touch with the startup community and provide news about Israel that were not about sort of like the conflict. And um, at the time, there was very little you could find about Israel in English. And, uh, you know, that never went away. So it's, you know, when I came to Google, of course, it was much more present there. And uh, I had a chance to mature more into sort of like this passion of startups and, and community and, and, you know, build my network in startups, etc. So it was a culmination of many, many years of caring about this. It wasn't, uh, you know, something new. I usually say that if you want to know what someone is passionate about, ask them what they do on their spare time. And what I was doing on my spare time is writing about startups, going to startups events, organizing them. And, uh, you know, this is not something you can fake. Absolutely. So VC Cafe, your, your many accomplishments have overshadowed this, but you're a prolific writer. Uh, how's your writing process like? First of all, it's very kind of you to say because I, I read your stuff and uh, I see that you think very deeply about subjects and uh, dissect them, etc. For me, it's a bit um, um, more inspired by, you know, things that I come across. Uh, so sometimes I have uh, predisposed ideas for, for posts, with, whether it's uh, either verticals we're looking at with Remagine Ventures or you know, a product that I tried and, and, and enjoyed. But in some cases, I just, you know, I would go out for a run and I would get the idea of like, you know, maybe I should write a, a blog post about it. And, and then I get obsessed <laughs> and I start doing research and collect a bunch of links. And uh, by the time I start writing, I already have sort of like the skeleton in my head. So it's a labor of love and it's uh, driven ultimately by curiosity and wanting to learn. And then and share that learning with people that read VC Cafe. And do you just, after the, so you got the ideation, which is usually when you have some headspace, then the research, which is reading and linking and everything, and then you just get it done in one, in one go or? Um, well, it depends. I have two little kids and uh, I'm trying to balance, uh, you know, work with, with family and stuff. So uh, my latest post, for example, I, I was thinking, you know, it's really confusing for startups how to approach corporates. And, um, you know, I can definitely help shed a light on, on Google, but, you know, this, it's the same problem for Amazon, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, etc. And there's a lot that these companies are doing to, to speak and engage with startups. It's just not very well organized. So... In this case, it wasn't a one-day process, you know, like it's uh, probably the bulk of it was done in, uh, in a couple of hours and then it's coming back to it and perfecting it and asking people for feedback so I don't get something that's completely wrong out there. Most of the time, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I prefer to work at night and sort of like sit on it and, until it gets out 
and, and then I'm my worst critic. So I keep coming back and sort of like retouching it and finding a typo that I missed, etc. When, when kids are, are sleeping, it's funny yeah. how people without kids and with kids experience COVID differently, right? <laughs> Well, I, I joke that there's two separate um, entries in the dictionary, working from home and working from home with kids. <laughs> and it's not the same concept. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Let's, let's go back a bit to your work at Google with Head of Campus and then Head of Google for Entrepreneurs. After your work over there, you must have a pretty good sense of what it takes to build a tech ecosystem, which is personally one of my favorite topics. Do you have a playbook for that or how do you think about building technical systems? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I forget if it was Reid Hoffman or Brad Feld or Paul Graham that said that um, you really need three key ingredients to, to create a successful startup ecosystem. You need talent and this is engineers, you know, developers, designers, um, entrepreneurs, and you need capital, you know, the ability to, to raise money across stages from, from angel to, to growth, etc. And, um, and then you need sort of like ideas or, you know, attitude. Uh, and this is uh, really about being ambitious and sort of like uh, being able to innovate. And I think generally speaking in Silicon Valley, you know, all those three things um, sort of like combine very, very strongly. And the, the reality is that those ecosystems are now popping up everywhere. And this has been a process for years, but uh, London, for example, had an incredible pool of talent with some of the best schools globally, you know, like Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, Kings, Imperial, uh, UCL, etc., And also a huge number of people from abroad to, to access these school networks, which I think uh, the diversity of the talent is also extremely important for what we talked about, you know, immigrants and, and perspective and, and seeing problems in a different way. The pool of capital has improved tremendously in recent years. And um, I think also the notion that we can do it has changed dramatically because, you know, the narrative when you talk about Europe and venture changed in the last 10 years. At the time, the criticism was, was, you know, okay, show me a European unicorn. You don't have a European unicorn. And today with over 50 European unicorns or, you know, UiPath crossing the 10 billion valuation and, and Spotify getting to 50 billion, you know, nobody doubts that the, you can create massive companies from Europe, massive tech startups from Europe. So, I'm not sure if I, if I have the template, but I, I, I do think that you need those three key ingredients and then you can mix them up in different ways. And part of it was bringing people together and creating a density of network that um, you see in places like Silicon Valley. And uh, part of it is sort of like just experience and, and time and, and success cases and failures as well. So people sort of like know what it's like and, and the information dissipates quicker. You know, at the time, there was not enough knowledge transfer from successful entrepreneurs to, the, to sort of like the new entrepreneurial generation. But I think now, you know, information is everywhere. There's a million examples that are live next to you, newsletters, blogs, etc. So a lot has changed. You might not have a template, but, but you definitely have a framework. So you have these three pillars, which are talent, capital, and then 
I'm not sure how you call them, but ideas or norms. Maybe or attitude. Attitude. Yeah, absolutely. Let's 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 unpack that a bit. So the first one, talent. How do you think about attracting talent to a particular ecosystem, and what sort of role do you think immigration plays in this? All right. So I think talent is really about attracting the the best uh, minds, and um, there's formal ways of doing it. Like you know, education and universities are a great example. You know, there's other examples could be that it's a great place to live, right? Like you're normally based in Barcelona and people love the beach and the sun and uh, they, they might, uh, might like going there. So I think different ecosystems have different uh, honey traps for how to, to bring talent. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about London, you know, as an example, but London is, you know, a metropolis. Uh, it's super global, connected and um, I think the schools play a huge role in it, but also all the companies are here, the multinationals, uh, you know, for, for many of them, this is their European HQ. So you, you definitely need to have um, lots of talent and diverse talent. And that means uh, diverse in terms of their, you know, who they are and what they do, where they're from, age, gender, uh, um, you know, uh, ethnicity, etc. What about immigration? Um, if, if you had to sort of come up with an immigration plan from scratch, what are the things that you think are important? Well, I just recently read, uh, you know, that Trump is limiting um, H-1B visas. Um, and I believe 70% of the visa quotas get taken by the top tech companies. I think immigration plays a huge role in tech and, and uh, in the innovation ecosystem plays a huge role and um, you, you, you need to uh, essentially, if you want to attract the best minds in the world, by definition, you know, they can come from anywhere and you need to be able to, to give them the option to do that. And uh, today I think we're in an interesting position where, you know, countries are becoming more protective of their economies. And, you know, of course, especially now during COVID, it's a, a distortion now, of, you know, where, where we used to be with global travel, but uh, the, the flow of talent is very important for the development of an ecosystem. Yes, I know for a fact that Europe uh, as a continent is starting to, to look into this, which is very promising. And I, I love what Estonia is doing with their immigration program. I love what uh, France is doing with their new tech visa. So there's definitely mm-hmm. hope and definitely practical examples to look at. Let's go to a third pillar, which you essentially labeled as attitude. But I think it's it's sort of your perspective towards failure, risk, ambition, and you have a very unique lens. So you lived in the US, you lived in London, then Israel. What do you think are the difference between set norms, between Silicon Valley, Europe, and the Middle East? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think <laughs> attitude also has to do with, with timing, you know, like after the financial crisis, sort of like the UK understood that they have to diversify from financial services, uh, but more importantly, graduates understood that those jobs that they were hoping to get in uh, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs are not going to be there. And suddenly startups became a viable option. So I think attitude is more of a catch-all bucket to, you know, drivers or incentives for people to create companies. And it can be sort of like ideas and, and, and innovation or, or inclusive innovation, but it can also have, it can also do with sort of like uh, timing and, and attitude and, and constraints that they have uh, that simply no jobs. So my perspective on this is um, 
that it really depends, you know, sort of like what ecosystem you're talking about and at what point in time you're talking about it. But um, generally speaking, Israel is a tiny domestic market with a high density of talent and a high concentration of capital. And Israelis, basically the role model is you want to be an entrepreneur. It's even sort of like celebrated in, in popular culture. So I used to joke uh, in the US, you, you know the show Entourage, right? Yeah. So the story of Entourage is that you have one of the guys is a, becomes a movie star and all of his friends move with him to, to Hollywood and they live sort of like the life of the movie star. In Israel, they filmed a similar uh, program about four friends, but they sold a tech startup and then they, they lived the life. And they came from very humble sort of like uh, beginnings. So, you know, the role model in Israel is, is uh, to be an entrepreneur. You, you take a taxi in Israel and if you tell the taxi driver that you're an investor, he's definitely going to pitch you a startup idea. And so is the babysitter and the waitress. And, you know, the, it, basically the, the distance in the social graph between you and an entrepreneur is one because there's so many and, and that's what people want to be. So I think attitude towards entrepreneurship and risk-taking, I think is very important. The other thing that Israel has is that uh, it has no domestic market to speak of because it's a tiny market. So entrepreneurs think globally from day one. So when they're building their companies, they're not building their companies for the local market. They're thinking mostly about the US. You know, in recent years, maybe there's more awareness of Europe and in Asia as well, but uh, mostly building towards the US and with big ambitions. And because they have role models of many companies that exited and unicorns and they probably know people that started and sold businesses, they have this belief that they also can do it and they sort of like lean in towards entrepreneurship. In Silicon Valley in the US, I would say the level of professionalism and the etiquette of doing business is very high. You know, even junior people that get trained in a global tech company have certain standards that unless you were exposed to them, there's going to be a learning curve. You know, what's it like to run a meeting? How do you set goals? Uh, you know, how do you set the parameters for a partnership? Uh, how do you approach sales? I think the level of professionalism, even from sort of like young ages, uh, is very high. And there's a certain confidence about sort of like the, the American entrepreneur that starts from childhood. You know, in, in Europe, um, and to some extent in Israel, in school, it, it's more, more about memorizing. In the U.S., it's more about confidence, you know, like it's uh, competitive and play sports and public speaking. And there's something about sort of like being out there that, uh, you know, it, it feels sort of, it comes very natural to them. So I think if you compare sort of like these three ecosystems, you have sort of like conservative Europe, you know, like let's talk it down. Let's not brag. Let's not uh, take too much risk. Let's develop locally for for this ecosystem, and if it works, we can expand to other countries in Europe. Then you have Israel, super risk-taking, aggressive, chutzpah, you know, like uh, elbows and like get it done no matter what. And then you have the Americans, which are very organized, you know, like think things about things uh, at scale, very ambitious plans and, and sort of like a, a confidence about them that uh, we can do it. Sometimes you're able to combine those, uh, those three, and it's a beautiful thing. Most people think, or when they think of Israel as a technology hub, they, they put it much closer to Europe than to the U.S. Maybe it's the geographical proximity. But, but when I'm thinking about attitude of this 
high density of talent, global ambitions, it's much closer to to the US, not, not at least to Silicon Valley, uh, not to Europe where people think locally. Yeah, you, you're right. You know, I'm, one of my next posts, I'm going to talk about uh, Israeli unicorns and uh, there's a huge problem with counting <laughs> because the companies become American very quickly. And if you think about Lemonade or, you know, Hippo Insurance recently and many others, you know, you would think about them as American companies, but they're very much Israeli or started by Israelis and have R&D teams in Israel, etc. So I think you're right that philosophically it's much closer to the U.S., but I believe sort of like regionally it's much closer to Europe, right? So I, I normally say that I take the Eurovision approach, right? Like if you're included in the Eurovision, you're part of Europe. You know, if you're in, in Barcelona, you probably know, like, they care a lot about basketball, not just football. Israel plays in the European League. Israel is in the Eurovision. So in that sense, I guess there's, there's also sort of, like, ties uh, with Europe. From a market perspective and a mentality perspective, it's closer to the U.S., you're right. The, the thing to highlight for me, or the most important one, is that in Israel, as you were mentioning, and, and in Silicon Valley, sort of the default path for ambitious people is to go and start companies. And that's not the case uh, in Europe where people think about consulting or academia or finance. How do you think we can cultivate that? Well, I think we, we already have one huge plus, which is um, in many places in Europe, education, higher education is free. And, you know, if you think about sort of like the, the US graduates, they Either they were fortunate enough to have their education paid by their parents, but in most cases they have to take crippling student loans, which then basically necessitate them to go and work for a corporate to pay off that debt. And in a way, you know, we're free from that uh, burden. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with attitudes. And I'm not necessarily sure that it's the wrong thing for graduates to go and, and, and start by working in a company. And it doesn't matter if it's a startup or a large company to learn first because those experiences are going to sort of like embody or or shape the the company that they will start later of course in many cases it's easier said than done and once you get on that path you know you're afraid to risk sort of like the the security of the of the paycheck but i think more and more you know the youth and uh, sort of like the students they see that it's possible and they see that, that others are doing it and they find the support systems, you know, like a Google campus or like accelerators, uh, et cetera, where they are able to, to learn or get sort of like this uh, experience of a startup without necessarily jumping cold into the water without any support, et cetera. So, you know, the density of network definitely helps there. And, you know, the, it's, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more startups we have, the more startups that will get created as well. Let's jump to your latest move, Reimagined Ventures. Why don't you tell us more a bit about that and why the move to your own fund? Sure. So Reimagined Ventures is a seed and pre-seed fund investing at the intersection of tech, entertainment, data, and commerce. We sort of like look at entertainment broadly defined, and I'm happy to talk more about that. And partly we are backed by some of the largest companies in this space. I was very fortunate to start Reimagine with a very close uh, friend and, and partner, Kevin Backspiller, who not only we went to college together, I told you about the, 
Zelle Entrepreneurship Program in the beginning, we were in the same team and we created a startup um, together at the last year of college and spent every, every day and every waking hour of our last year of college uh, together working on this. And then out of this program, two kids uh, received job offers in, in New York and it was Kevin and myself. So when I moved to New York, I, I didn't know anyone else in the Big Apple apart from, from Kevin. So, you know, there's a huge amount of, uh, of trust and uh, past shared experiences that go into this uh, partnership. But basically, we, we raised this fund partly from um, some of the largest corporates in this space. Kevin brought the experience of managing investments for a large media conglomerate. And I had the investment experience from Google Ventures. And we both uh, understood something um, about the model and the limitations of corporate venture capital and how we might be able to sort of like take out the bad, but actually keep the good and, and put it to the support of our portfolio. So the, having that many media corporates as LPs, was that a deliberate decision or just a byproduct of, of your background? No, it, it was deliberate. Um, so we sort of like looked at Remagine initially uh, a little bit like a multi-corporate Google Ventures where we invest for financial returns, but having these corporates as LPs enabled us uh, before we invest to really understand the problems in a very deep level, getting real-time feedback from the market, but also understanding sort of like their challenges and, uh, and how they see the world. And then after we invest, help the portfolio in a very meaningful way that's differentiated. So very much by design. So you mentioned you invest at the intersection of entertainment, sports, commerce, and, and data. Uh, can you unpack that thesis a bit more and how it has evolved over time? Yeah, so if you think about this, um, you know, th there's been a huge wave of consolidation in the entertainment world, right? Like AT&T buying Time Warner, Verizon buying uh, Yahoo and AOL, you know, Disney buying Fox, Comcast buying Sky. And this is happening essentially because these companies need to get to scale. They need to get to scale because they are seeing sort of like the monetization aspect of what they do disappearing to, to tech companies. At the heart of this revolution, and the, the reason they need to get to scale is, is really tech. There's a huge reinvention of entertainment through AI technologies and, and through sort of like changing consumer behaviors. You know, like we all have a phone, we're all connected to the internet, we shop differently, we learn differently, we communicate with each other differently. Certainly, much, much differently than it was 10 years ago. If you think about sort of like the fact that, you know, the iPhone only came out in 2007, which is crazy. So these companies are, are basically feeling it. And in the same way that uh, what uh, Benedict Evans calls a forced experiment that we're seeing now with COVID and remote work, I think another forced experiment is how we spend our time outside of work and and you know, how, how is it changing the way that we look at uh, fitness, wellness, entertainment, uh, education, you know, shopping and, and, and leisure time, et cetera. So that's where we focus. Partly, I think it's, uh, it's interesting because there, there's really less focus on that. Uh, so you know, in, in, in Israel, for example, if you have a cyber company, there's gonna be a lot of investors chasing that deal and coming from a cyber background, et cetera. 
which I think, you know, there's great companies being built, but ultimately you're selling to the same 500 chief information security officers. When it comes to entertainment, you know, broadly defined, so if you think about it as sort of like gaming, streaming, content, uh, you know, shopping, sports, esports, etc., there, there isn't much expertise in that space. And, and it's a huge sort of like discipline that includes many other verticals within it. So it's great to be able to sort of like combine this shift in consumer trends with the improvements in technology and all the ideas that it can create as a result. You wrote an entire post on vir virtual worlds. I think you, you numbered 100. What's an underrated area to look at when it comes to intersection of tech and entertainment? And the virtual worlds is the, sort of one of my examples. Well, where credit, uh, credit is due to my partner, Kevin, that actually wrote it. And, um, you know, we published it on VC Cafe, but uh, really, you probably are familiar with the concept of the metaverse. And if you think about sort of like the evolution of virtual worlds, you know, it, it started way back then. But, uh, you know, some of us are familiar with the Second Life that recently created by Glinden Labs that recently was sold where you have an avatar sort of like living in a virtual world and they were uh, realist, virtual real estate uh, deals done, etc. You know, you, we all know sort of like multiplayer online games and maybe until recently it was like a geeky, distant thing. You watch the movie Ready Player One, I'm assuming, or read the book? Both, actually. Both. So the concept of the metaverse there in the Oasis is very clear because there was a, a place where everyone... Um, sort of like to escape reality goes and hangs out in the virtual world and I'm not sure today we still have uh, the equivalent of the oasis I think uh, we're creating actually multiple metaverses but maybe you know the way to think about it is it's going to start from gaming right like it's going to start from this Fortnite experience that brings together hundreds of millions of people you know initially to play a game but increasingly to do other things than play the game and hang out in a virtual space. So, you know, when you think about virtual worlds, it's not so much sort of like investing in the virtual world, investing in, in epic games. It's thinking what opportunities, you know, what would sort of like these consumer trends and changing technology, what opportunities will those create in a place where virtual worlds are commonplace? You know, like where, how are you going to get your music? How are you going to do your shopping? You know, what does, what implications does it have for avatar technology or personalization or how you access this and, and where you access this? And this sort of stuff is, uh, is fascinating and it's cutting edge. And, you know, this is what keeps me going. And I'm extremely excited about uh, the future of some of these uh, trends and, you're starting to see them not only in gaming, but penetrating other areas like, like fitness and wellness and education and, you know, online therapy. And I think gamification as a whole is even entering the workspace. This aligns perfectly with, with what you were saying um, about your version of the future and transmitting that to sort of create the impact one piece that is missing is the founder and the companies. Like, what's your framework for picking founders and companies and evaluating companies? You know, 
I think uh, retrospect is the 2020. I forget exactly how the expression goes. I can try and sound smart and say that we have a framework and top down, etc. And the reality is, in some cases, we think about markets or trends from a top down perspective. Um, for example, esports is an area that we think about a lot, and you know we analyze and we're sort of like aware of the matrix. In some other areas, I think you know we have varying levels of of analysis, but I, I would say that it's a combination of top down thinking about a trend and you know what will affect the trend and bottom up talking to entrepreneurs that come with an ambitious idea that you might not have thought about but suddenly it makes a lot of sense but normally it's in the context of a market or a technology or you know an, an underserved need that suddenly becomes obvious having the corporates behind me basically gives me the benefit of, of being able to validate this and, and try to help them even before investing in the company but it's not all top-down um, thesis so maybe a roundabout way to answer your question is we think about sort of like what are the consumer trends that are impacting the world uh, today in a massive way and that we believe will continue and then what are the technology improvements that uh, suddenly make certain things um, possible mainly focusing on AI, machine learning, computer vision, deep learning, et cetera. And, and then when we see a combination of the two in an area where we believe we can help the startup beyond the money, that's when we get really excited. And I'm, I'm happy to give you examples from, from our portfolio to, to put this sort of like case in point. Please, absolutely. For example, we, um, we invested in a company that's called um, Site, S-Y-T-E dot A-I, and they're essentially a visual search engine. Uh, they understand products inside images with a very high degree of accuracy. So because I come from a search background, you know, at uh, shopping.com, at uh, ask.com, AOL, Google, etc., I was very skeptical. And as an example of how we work with the corporates, you know, one of our investors was able to provide us with the uh, 60,000 images. We sort of like took an expert approach and, and brought a computer vision expert and we asked them to benchmark the APIs in the space for accuracy and uh, take this data that we had and like how does site compare and insight came up uh, number one by a margin so we knew okay there's really interesting technology here you know do we believe that visual search is going to to be a thing and can we build a business around it and you know fast forward you know I think uh, about half of our corporate LPs are now clients. One of them co-developed a product with the startup to sort of like use the technology in a slightly different way that became a, a big driver for, for revenue for the company. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like taking a technology that is nascent today, you know, it feels like uh, this is very early, et cetera, but you can see where it's going and you can help them sort of like add wood to the fire. And they're, they're doing incredibly well. They are, you know, powering the, the Samsung Assistant. They're in about 800 million phones and they're working with many retailers as well. So it, it's an example. Another one is um, Vault AI uh, that does predictive analytics for consumer insights. So basically they are able to, they started with movies and they, they were able to analyze scripts and understand how well um, is it going to do. So, 75% of content 
doesn't return the investment. And if you're going to look at 3,000 scripts this year, which are the ones that you should focus on that are not only going to make you money, but also you know, resonate with the demographics you're trying to hit. Today, they do much more than predictive analytics uh, for scripts. They also sort of like understand where your existing content would work geographically, what demographics it affects, what advertising categories go with it. But this is an example of sort of like taking a, a market where things were done the old fashioned way, uh, a bit like a money ball for content, right? Uh, the experts, quote unquote, would choose what projects to work on based on a gut feeling. And those are very expensive decisions that uh, were taken without much data into consideration. And we're sort of like combining AI and the industry um, suddenly creates a lot of opportunities. And maybe finally, our one, is a company that uh, uses uh, generative adversarial networks to animate characters that are based on on real humans. So, you know, this is this is really cutting edge AI technology. But um, can we sort of like leverage it and shape it in a way that it becomes useful and can create a, a big business, but also solve a real problem? At such an early stage, uh, the stage you guys invest, it's, it's a promise and technology, but also a big part is the team. How do you think about partnering with founders? What are the type of founders that you'd like to see more of? You know, it's, it's hard to categorize. I, think, I do think that it's, uh, it's a very close partnership. And uh, in a way, when, when you invest in a startup, you're not just uh, marrying sort of like the fun marrying the startup is the founder marrying the partner. And it's a very close relationship, especially at the early stage. And there is a personality um, a fit that, that needs to happen. But we're all biased and we all sort of like can fall into the trap of trying to invest in people that look or think or speak like us. And we're very aware of that. And you know, I, th I think you should really work towards finding that diversity, but also finding that fit with the person despite the, the differences. So um, with the, the founders, you know, that we invested in, we work very, very closely. I would say the communication is on a regular basis, you know, apart from the formalities of, of board meetings, etc., we feel... Uh, you know, we roll up our sleeves and we feel, you know, we would do anything for, for one of our companies from getting them leads through the door to introductions, to talent, to follow on investment. And it's intense. So it's the most dangerous stage of a startup, this, this early stage where the failure rate is high. And we do everything that we can to help them not only uh, survive, but uh, thrive and succeed on growing to the next level. Let's switch gears a bit for, for the final part of the, of the conversation. I'm wondering, what do you think your edge is? And by edge, I mean this intersection of attitudes, skills, interests that, that makes you unique. You know, I just recently read a very interesting post at Forbes by a fund of funds, a guy called, uh, I think he's, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think his name is Hatrong, um, H-A-T-R-O-N-G. Um, talking about sort of like the VC edge. And he talks about multiple different edges. There's sort of like informational edge and behavioral edge, etc. You know, it's, so I highly recommend reading it to sort of like see uh, distinct edges you can develop. I think for me, it's a combination of passion. I really love 
what I do. And that means that I, I basically have a big appetite for it every day. And I sort of like, it doesn't feel like work, even though I've never worked harder. And curiosity. And this is curiosity about ideas and innovation and sort of like always, you know, waking up knowing that I'm going to learn something new today, but also curiosity about people. And I think that venture capital, as opposed to sort of like stock investing, is a very personal game, right? Like you end up working with other people and you're helping them. Ultimately, they are the ones in the trenches, but you are helping them sort of like fight the good fight. And uh, that, that really drives me, this uh, engagement with people and the fact that the stakes are high and the roller coaster of a startup, you know, what we started with, sort of like the difference between big companies and startups, a win with a small startup and a small team is the best high. What about your personal edge? Someone said you're great at rallying people around one purpose. Well, I, I take it as a compliment. Um, you know, I, I, I think, again, if, if you're, if you're um, lucky enough to be able to clearly communicate what is it that you're trying to achieve and basically bring people with you, then it's, it's much bigger than yourself. You know, like uh, that becomes a shared purpose. Maybe you're alluding to, to tech bikers, but, uh, you know, it, I've been very fortunate to basically start this organization and attract great collaborators and, and volunteers and people who took part and, and believed in it. And, uh, you know, the impact has been incredible, but it's also been a great fun along the way. So I don't know if it's my edge, you know, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like something I, I do. It's more like who I am. What's the next tech bikers, right? You know, it's COVID-19 days, so it's been pretty hard to, to plan physical rides that go cross-country and who knows, you know, where you're going to be quarantined, etc. But I'm very happy to say that there is a team of VCs and entrepreneurs that uh, the core came from Paris, from Daphne VC, and they're going to do a ride in September in Mallorca. So normally we go from country to country, like Paris to London, Vienna to Budapest, Copenhagen to Berlin, etc. This is going to be a circular ride in Mallorca, so there's no need to cross too many borders. And uh, the dates are, are going to be on the techbikers.com uh, website. And we're thinking about um, doing in early September a UK-only type ride. Normally, tech bikers, like a Paris to London ride, would bring 70 people from 30 different countries and it's, it's an incredible feeling. But, you know, with COVID, it's very hard to plan. And we, we don't want to put people at risk. And uh, we want to keep it into small groups, etc. So we're taking a bit of a break this year. But the spirit remains the same. The spirit remains the same. And, um, you know, we're all very connected uh, on our various groups. So, you know, maybe two words about Tech Bikers. But Tech Bikers started out of campus in 2012. Uh, was the first ride. Um, so this is going to be the eighth year that we're doing this. And it's essentially a nonprofit organization that brings together entrepreneurs, VCs, and, and tech executives around long distance cycling challenges to build schools and libraries in the developing world. So I think an organization called Room to Read. And I, I'm, I'm very proud to say that since we started, there's been more than a thousand people that participated and we created 11 schools and 50 libraries 
um, in places like Nepal, Vietnam, India, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Tanzania, and South Africa, as well as the thousands of books in the local language, scholarships for girls, training programs for teachers. And I was very fortunate to visit one of our libraries in Vietnam and one in Nepal. And uh, I can tell you that there's a lot of things that you can do professionally that sort of like feels like a win, but having a long lasting impact on, on really kids that, uh, that have very little in this world is uh, very important to me. And I think it touches uh, everyone that participated, whether they, they did the distance uh, cycling or donated or sponsored and uh, we should all, we're all very proud of this. Thank you so much, Easy. It's been a, an inspiring conversation and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Gons. Very thoughtful and I enjoyed doing it. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seat Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.